So the theme for this retreat is the paramis, the ten perfections. And the ten perfections are seen as supports for practice, supports for the path of liberation. And that's the spirit of the talk today, is to explore with you what might be supportive of you, for you, during this uh, month here practice. The paramis are also meant to be a challenge. And if the path to liberation never challenged you, I probably wouldn't be a path to liberation. So there's an appropriate time and place to be challenged as well. The the paramis have wings that make them fly. And that is, uh, the two wings are compassion and liberation, love and freedom. Without those wings, generosity would not be a parami. Generosity is a beautiful quality regardless, but when it uh, flies with some connection to liberation and some connection to compassion, then it becomes a parami, the perfection of generosity. And it might be interesting to look a little bit at the freedom side of this, the freedom wing, and to understand that Buddhism focuses um, on a, mostly on a particular kind of freedom. And maybe in America it's important to distinguish. There's freedom to do something, and there's freedom from. And it's a, certainly an overgeneralization, but I think of, when I think of American society, I think that it tries to specialize in the freedom to. Freedom to vote, certainly, freedom to speech, freedom to, have, to religion, freedom to assembly, freedom to own, own property, freedom to shop. <laughs> and, uh, and so the idea of being able to act freely is, uh, you know, not be inhibited or restrained by the government, by others, is very important, I think, <coughs> current in the society here. Buddhism focuses more on the freedom from, the freedom from compulsion, the freedom from addiction, from being driven by the forces of greed, of hate, of delusion. If the freedom two was utopia, we'd be given an unlimited credit card. But because we don't have an unlimited credit card, sooner or later, if someone really wants to buy, meets the limits of their ability to buy. And if they still have this urge to buy, they'd have to look at that urge. But if you had free access to buy all the time, you might never stop and look at what's what's prompting that urge. Maybe their urge comes from pleasure, desire for pleasure, maybe from security. The more you have, the more secure you can be. Many things. So, freedom from 
the urge to buy, freedom from the urge to grasp, freedom from the urge to run away, freedom from. And so there's a deep inner looking that goes on in Buddhist practice to really begin an understanding what is these urges that we have. The other wing of the paramis is compassion or love. And to, and partly that means to look at these urges, to look at this, what goes on deep inside of us, as an act of compassion, as an act of caring for ourselves, certainly, because it hurts to be driven by compulsive addiction. It hurts to be greed, hate, or deluded. And so to be able to kind of look and try to see, to wish yourself to, to free the heart of these things is a beautiful thing to do. It's a beautiful thing to do for other people as well. It's a tremendous gift that we give to others when we begin to kind of get a handle a little bit on these uh, addicted urges or attachments or fears that we might, might be driving us. And so to bring the, 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 uh, you know, the context of the parami practice is understanding something about liberation. We're trying to free ourselves. And hopefully we're trying to do it with some kindness or compassion for self and others. So the great bird of the paramis has these two wings. And then the, the, the ten paramis are the body of the bird. Without the body, you know, the wings would just flap around on the ground. There needs to be a body as well. And so the ten paramis are generosity, integrity, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, determination, loving kindness, and equanimity. So those are the kind of ten we're going to be exploring in the course of the month, kind of a little review. And each of these supports letting the bird fly, give strength to the wings so they can fly better. Set your heart free, let your heart fly. Now a bird that never lets go of its branch doesn't fly. A bird which holds onto lots of branches <laughs> doesn't fly. If the bird's going to fly, it has to let go of the branch that it's sitting on. So in order for this bird of the paramis to fly in your hearts, there has to be some movement of letting go. And so the exploration of this letting go is an important part of this endeavor. And to look at letting go and how it serves the possibility of freedom. And to look at letting go and how it's an expression and a manifestation of care, of compassion. So the third of the paramis is renunciation. It's the usual way it's translated into English. And generally, when I give a talk on renunciation, I suspect 
that there's usually some people in the audience, as soon as they hear the theme of the talk, stop listening. Or worse. And some of that might be because of the English word pronunciation. At least in my mind, it conjures up associations of deprivation, of loss. The Pali word for renunciation is nekama. And the ancient Buddhist commentators derived its etymology from the words to go out, to go, to go forth. And then they would explain it from the suttas with the idea that it's like going out from a dusty, confined house into the wide open spaces. So imagine having cabin fever, snowed in, cabin fever, can't get out, one room cabin in the mountains and all your relatives. (laughs) All winter long. And how great it is to finally go out, go forth in the wide open spaces. That's a little bit more the association of this word renunciation in Pali, in Buddhism, than it is with deprivation or, you know, loss. In fact, the idea of renunciation uh, focuses more on what is gained than what is lost. Letting go in Buddhism is not to diminish you, but rather it's to provide you with great gain, great benefit, do something really wonderful for you. And so part of the task here is also to begin appreciating the possibilities, appreciating the benefits that come from letting go, from renunciation. How does it serve you? How does it support you to do that? And um, the paramis begin with generosity and then integrity. And those precede then renunciation. And part of the reasoning for that or the path, the way that works is that classically generosity and integrity, the practice of that, the cultivation of that, is meant to create some sense of well-being. So you feel good about yourself. And then that well-being is available, so when you let go, you don't let go of that, please. But you let go into that. You let go and you're more there in that sense of well-being. And I can tell you there are plenty of traditional Buddhist teachers in Asia who if they heard that you were all sitting for a whole month on retreat, following the precepts, they would be so happy. They would think that's such a fantastic, wonderful thing that there are people living with such integrity for a month. And I say that because it's, I know for me, I was like number one expert on guilt and self-deprecation and, and, um, feeling adequate and, you know, all those wonderful, wonderful 
frequently painful things. I used to think that Gil was short for guilt. <laughs> and so in that state, it was hard to appreciate that I was really doing something wonderful. You know, this certainly doesn't count. It's kind of like by default or by accident that I'm living ethically on retreat just because some, <laughs> it, I'm not, you know, it doesn't, they're not really talking about me. So I pass that on to you with a hope, a little hope, that you might feel even better about yourself than you were before the talk, <laughs> about being here and doing this wonderful thing, living ethically. So renunciation follows that. So rather than looking at what's lost and letting go, we can look at what's gained. And there's many things that can be gained. Coming to a retreat like this is an act of renunciation. In fact, maybe we should advertise this 30-day renunciation retreat. It's as important part of the retreat as Vipassana, but we call it a Vipassana retreat, mindfulness retreat, because that's kind of popular. People come then. <laughs> but renunciation. But you know, it is. Uh, you renounced a lot, you gave up a lot, put aside a lot in coming here. And I can go through a, a list, you can come put, your own list of what you put aside. But you put aside, for example, uh, television, and I suspect that most of you don't miss it. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> um, you put aside reading newspapers, books, you put aside the computer, email you put aside while you're here. There's a long list of things you put aside, you renounce temporarily, and probably, probably have a sense that you know, if we open to put, you know, put a little, you know, computer terminals lined up in the foyer so that you can just keep up on emails during the walking periods, <laughs> <laughs> you probably have some sense we're doing you a disservice. You know, there's a, there'd probably be, you'd lose something quite dramatic. So I'm trying to make a point that in renouncing those things, you probably have some feeling this is really right. Something is gained in letting go of all those things the greater intimacy, a greater sense of being present, letting go of many things that, where the mind usually gets caught and taken up with. Kind of, it's nice not to be caught up in all those things. So there's something really to be gained from that act of renunciation, coming here. But also, the act of renunciation, like that, of kind of limiting what we do in that way, also has the benefit of challenging us, or to say it differently, of revealing to us what some of those impulses are, some of those attachments are, the, the addictions of the mind, what the mind wants, this and that. Or how it operates, so that little bit, so that we see what drives us, the operating principles that kind of run our daily lives, in a way we can't see when we're out in the world. So one of the things that happens on the retreat, we renounce or give up or put aside temporarily Social speech, social talking. Some people love it. Some people find it very challenging to not be able to talk to people on the retreat. You sit down at a dining room table, 
If you don't know any about that, any of them, maybe the first day or so, you sit down to have your meal. And there's already people sitting there. And when you sit down, no one looks up at you or acknowledges you. They're all looking into their oatmeal, <laughs> eating really slowly. And out there in the real world, if you sit down at a table and everyone's looking at their oatmeal and not acknowledging you, it's bad news. <laughs> They're ignoring me. And so if there's a strong need or drive to establish who we are, find ourselves, get oriented who we are in relationship to other people. Do people like me? Do they know who I am? Do they listen to who? Can I, can I sh- explain to them who I am so they know? Can I find out if they're safe? There's a whole bunch of social needs that people have. That in the usual way of fulfilling those don't get met coming because you're not talking. And so at sometimes that can be a little bit or quite a bit disturbing or challenging or disorienting. So what gets, what gets shown then is, oh, the social world, the relational world is really important for me. It's, it's high priority of my mind, what I think about, what, what I'm trying to do here. And I can see how much I'm looking out and trying to connect or trying to see or trying to understand or trying to find out if it's safe among these people. or do, You know, there's a lot of things that might be going on. Or there might be the so-called vipassana romance that goes on. And I, you know, you, I remember I had one vipassana romance on a three-month retreat. And I'm in awe of the power of the mind to fantasize. I fantasized about her for three months. It was intermittent. It was intermittent, luckily. <laughs> But when, when, there was, when there was an idle moment, <laughs> which there was occasionally. <laughs> so, you know, so to see that drive, you know, to be in relationship, or to, to drive to be aversive, to be judgmental. I had no idea I had such an amazing capacity. It's awesome to see the capacity for judgments. Wow, the universe should be built in such a way. Five billion years of evolution comes down to me judging how much oatmeal they take. (laughs) Wow, that's really amazing. So we start seeing. So part of the value of limiting what we do, putting aside a lot of the normal behavior, is we get to start seeing and highlight some of the things that drive us that maybe we wouldn't be able to see if we're able to act on them in daily life, because then they become more invisible, visible. They get kind of camouflaged in the energy and stuff. So there's a deeper meeting with ourselves in the act of limit, limiting ourselves, of the renunciation. And hopefully you have a sense of the benefits and the way that supports you to have that deeper meeting, to see yourself more deeply, to understand what, what drives you and what goes, what goes on. It can, be, it, can, it can follow closely on sometimes self-criticism, self-judgment, because self-knowledge is often not good news. But to recontextualize it, to reframe it, to understand it, that actually it's really good to start looking and seeing at all these tendencies in our mind so we can come to a new relationship to it. So we can find out how to become free from it, 
Not necessarily so it goes away, but so it no longer drives us or causes us to suffer. To shift something. So we have to see it for that to happen. So then we renounce here, you know, coming to the retreat, the lots. But then even within the retreat, there can be a renunciation to the schedule. And I, I was quite uh, amazed, not amazed is the right word, but kind of was happily to discover um, what a relief it was for me to follow the schedule at times on retreat. Because it, my tendency was, should I, shouldn't I? Is this the right time to sit? Should I walk? Should I, you know, should I have tea now? What should I do? You know? And I just drove myself batty with those kinds of kind of uh, wondering what to do indecisive and this and that. And having the schedule as a reference point for me just made things so much simpler. Time to sit, I'll go sit. Time to walk, I'll go walk. And in that, I also saw myself better. I saw sometimes the drive, the drive oh, this would be a great time for X. If I hadn't had the schedule as kind of a guide or a limit, I very easily could have gone off for tea or a nap or whatever without really questioning it, without really looking deeply. I would have just kind of followed out of old habit this what I, what I did. So the schedule is a kind of surrender to the schedule is also kind of a wonderful training and offers possibilities as well, benefits. And then within the sitting itself, or in the walking, within the walking practice, you could, you could sit down here to meditate and just leave your mind free to do whatever it damn wants. And you probably get calmer if you did really do that well. But, you know, I, I, you know I have an, I've had an amazing capacities of letting my mind wander off freely against my will. I would spend three days designing helicopters <laughs> on a retreat. I know nothing about aerodynamics. <laughs> and nothing about business, but I had also written up the business plan. So to give you know the mind complete freedom, I don't think is what we have in mind here. The freedom to fantasize, freedom to you know whatever. There's also a meeting or deeper looking at what goes on in the mind as well. And so the introductory instructions for mindfulness practice, in the when the Buddha taught the four foundations of mindfulness, the first kind of thing he taught was put aside um, covetousness and distress for the world. For a long time I looked at that and thought, that's really strange. That's the first instruction. That's the reason I want to meditate, <laughs> is so I can do that. How's that supposed to be first? And what I've, what I've come to understand, understand this way, that having desire for the world, things of the world, or having distress about how things of the world are, or how 
things of the world include what's in, in the inner world as well, is a norm, normal thing to have. You know, it's not so unusual to have that. But to live in that, to be involved in that, to be focused on being distressed, focusing on wanting, that's not the practice. There has to be the wisdom and willingness to realize that we're stepping out of, stepping away from, living in the desire, living in the distress. It doesn't mean the distress or the desire goes away, but it means that we don't identify with it, we don't take this to be who I am, we don't get caught up in the middle of trying to fix it and needing it and doing something about it. There's a stepping back or stepping away so we can see it, so we can be present for the actual experience of what's happening here. So having the, you know, the kind of idea of a, maybe could be any kind of desire here in the retreat. It could be romance, desire for a, you know, something at the you know, seconds down at the, at the dining hall. You've had a nice meal, you've had enough to eat, but it's so good, and so you'd like to have a seconds just because it's for the pleasure of it. And so there might be the desire for the food. If you just get up and get the seconds and eat it, that's living in the desire. To put, away, to put aside desire for the world means, in my, mindfulness practice, means to step back and feel and notice and see, know, and know oh, this, this is desire. It's not pushing the desire away or judging it, it's just, oh, this is desire. Oh, this is distress. So there's a kind of stepping back and not kind of letting yourself kind of get swept into the current of the flows of the mind and living in it. So there has to be some, the wisdom, there has to be some wisdom and willingness to step back or to step into mindfulness. Not necessarily easy, but there has to at least be, under, at least be the understanding that that's what we're doing here. We're not designing helicopters. We're not planning the perfect wedding with the person down the row. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's wonderful Vipassana romance I had for three months. It was really great because three months is a long time to have a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it went, you know, so it was the initial meeting and the courting and the dating and then, then there was the marriage and all that and then there was divorce. <laughs> So that was all, you know, quite entertaining. And then, and then at the end of the retreat, I heard her speak. <laughs> and the whole fantasy was all built around her being an American. And she had this really thick foreign accent. And I realized in a moment I had no idea who this person was that I just <laughs> had married and divorced. <laughs> So some willingness to step away <laughs> from all these things. So, um, so then we sit down and we have a simple, hopefully a simple practice. For example, focusing on the breath is a relatively simple practice. 
And it is a kind of renunciation in itself. You renounce all the multitudinous things you can do with your mind, with your thoughts, your imagination. And you kind of just kind of let your attention kind of settle on the breath. There's benefits in doing that and challenges in doing that. One of the benefits is we get to see how difficult that is. We get to know to see how the mind wanders off. Mind has a mind of its own. And often enough, the mind will wander off into the past, into the future, into fantasy, into judging, into desiring. It picks up and gets involved in some kind of thinking. So part of being here is appropriate and healthy kind of renunciation of staying involved in thinking, discursive thinking. Without some willingness to renounce, at least in the moment, for the moment, discursive thinking, I don't think there's going to be any deep meditation, any real significant movement here. Discursive, discursive thinking certainly is important and has its place in life. But to be swept up in that world over and over again. So there has to be some you know, renunciation of that. And so, what are the benefits of doing that? How does that support practice? What's gained in renouncing that? And what is revealed? What do we learn in that process? So one of the things we learn is how powerful the mind can be. We also get to learn some of the common themes that pull us away or get, get us involved. And sometimes it's, it's hard living our normal life sometimes, occasionally, to actually see how persistent certain themes are. It's not uncommon on retreat for someone to come in and say, um, wow, I had no idea how pervasive fear drives me, runs the show. It seems to be there in the kind of the corners of everything I do is a level of fear or aversion or something. So, you, so by the kind of seeing it here over and over again, start seeing how frequent it is. It kind of gets highlighted and revealed. We also have the opportunity to look more carefully at what thinking is and what thinking comes out of. I think there's a lot of wisdom to be had by including in your mindfulness what is this world of thinking? Not to think more about it by any means. Don't think about thinking. But uh, if thinking is something that persists a lot for you as you meditate and sit here and walk, take a second look at it. Look more deeply at it. See if you can start seeing what's actually this composite event we call thinking, what it is. And a lot of that investigation involves uh, not being so interested in the content per se. Sometimes that's useful. But what's the event of thinking like? So I'll give you some, um, some, you know, some pointers of how, what to look, what to look, look for in the world of thinking. Sometimes it can be interesting to to um, to notice where is it. What's the location where thinking occurs for you? Do you tend to think more in words, or do you tend to think more in images? If it's images, is there kind of a screen, or is it a stage? 
Is it in your, you know, is it between your ears? Is it behind your forehead? Is it in your heart, in your belly? Is there some kind of location? When you're thinking a lot, you have some sense of it, some place where the loudspeaker is. Where it's happening. Now, this, some, some of you might not find it, just because you don't have to. But sometimes you can find that place. And once you've localized it, then it's kind of like Toto pulling the curtains on the great wizard. When you don't see the great wizard in the Wizard of Oz, he, he has all this power and charisma and whatever. But when the curtains are pulled and he's local, localized, local, located, you know, just this plump guy, you know, who, you know, kind of small and doesn't seem to have so much power and charisma after all. So to, sometimes to localize, to locate, where is it thinking occurs, can take some of the allure and power out of the pull into the world of thinking. Also, if there's, thinking is really strong for you, once you kind of explore it this way a little bit, you might also be able to find, uh, maybe in the same place, some tension or pressure or tightness that go, is associated with thinking. And this is a very, very, can be an important thing to notice because um, if there's a, a pressure in the mind or in the body someplace around thinking, if you let go of your thinking, but the pressure is still there, the pressure is just poised to pump out another thought. Letting go of the thinking you know, the, is, not, is not really enough when there's so much pressure or tension. So if you can localize, localize, locate Mm -hmm. the place in your body where there might be some tension or pressure, tightness connected to thinking, then as you let go of your thinking to come back to your breathing, see if you can also soften that tension or that pressure. It might actually be more useful to soften Soften, soften around. If you can't let go of it or, so, or relax it, just soften around it. Have a softening, caring kind of around it. And then, as you let go of thinking, let go of thinking and that complex of tension that might be connected to it, then you can see that the letting go of thinking is not just simply letting go and loss of something, but it's also a gain. Maybe there's a gain of some relaxation, or some openness, or some clarity, or some peace even, maybe momentarily. To have some sense that as you let go, as you renounce thinking, that there's something nice that comes from that. Makes it easier for the mind to want to let go of thinking. Oh, there's something to be gained here. There's something really beautiful here in the greater clarity or openness or spaciousness or relaxation that's there. It's also possible to look at the phenomena of thinking. Like you listen to the inner voice, perhaps. And you can notice that there's sometimes there might be an emotion connected to it. And again, with like, like with the physical pressure, if you don't acknowledge the emotion, the emotion might be poised to pump out the next thought. 
So people who plan a lot in meditation, chances are you know, better than 50-50 that there is some fear, apprehension. That's the pump for those planning thoughts. And you can let go of planning thoughts forever, but if there isn't some attending to the fear, the fear is going to pump out more thoughts, more plans, maybe. So to look, what's going on here? In the service of letting go, in the service of stepping back, stepping away, and just noticing what's, he, what's here, rather than living in the stream of the thoughts and the concerns. So there's a greater willingness to renounce. Thinking. Thinking is perhaps, perhaps one of the very difficult things to renounce. And so it well warrants some, some appreciation of the benefits of renouncing thinking. As we kind of come back to the breath, come back to the present moment, and we start and see the mind goes off in thought again, we start seeing, you know, what is it drives our thinking? What drives our concerns? What drives our preoccupations? So, what are some of the things? So, for example, um, it, uh, there could be a desire for comfort. Maybe the thoughts are comforting. Maybe there's a desire to know, to understand. If I only think, think about it enough, then I'll understand. It's really important to understand, to think. There could be driven by the idea of fixing things. If I just think things out well enough, that, all, that everything will be fine. There could be an attempt to create a better past. That's really important to do, to rearrange the furniture of the past. Come up with a perfect rejoinder that you wish you had done. There could be um, um, strong pull towards uh, safety, desire for safety, or a strong preoccupation with fear. And it's the fear, the preoccupation with fear, which generates thoughts. So to, to look and see, you know, what is it that drives this thinking that we have? On retreats, I remember one of the things that kind of, small thing that kind of sometimes drove my thinking and my, my inability to kind of really stay present was the wish or the desire or the need to see things go away. So, you know, I've been sitting, meditating, and maybe I had a pain someplace. And I just knew if I just kind of a lot of mindfulness on that pain, I can make it go away. So the fix-it approach to mindfulness. If I have a problem, I'm going to fix it with mindfulness. And then I have this, this idea that if I just, you know, I would be able to see it go away. And I would sit and wait and wait and wait and wait. <laughs> and then I'd go off and do walking meditation or something and go to a meal and come back and it was gone. <laughs> Where did it go? And I realized how much time I wasted waiting for something to happen. A teacher once said, if you're waiting for something to happen, you've missed the boat. So there could be this kind of expectation, anticipation that drives the thinking and preoccupation. 
And so we can see, oh, I'm always anticipating. I'm always, grass is always greener elsewhere. Or this, is, this moment is never enough. This can't be enough. This can't be what they mean as being adequate. There's something, some, I just have to wait until, you know, probably the next sitting. I'll just tough this one out because this one's lost. <laughs> and so there's all these kind of thinking ideas. And then how do we relate to it? Putting aside desire and distress for the world means a willingness also, or it involves also understanding that thinking about things and going into preoccupations is not where the practice is. The practice is noticing what is. Noticing what is. Oh, this is what is right now. This is what's going on now. Right now, there's planning for tomorrow. Right now, there's judging. Right now, there's stillness. Right now. And there is a kind of renunciation involved in saying so simple, just to know this is what's happening. That's all. And letting it be that way. It can be a very profound renunciation. And hopefully you have some sense of the benefits that come from you, the gain that comes. Sense of peace, sense of not being in conflict, the sense of maybe calm or stillness that can come. Just letting things be really simple, let things be as they are. Because Adrian was, was Adrian who said about the generosity of letting your, or you said it, of letting things, saving all beings by letting all beings being what they are. So, I'm going to um, show you something. So here's a flower. And Trudy knows that Zen masters hold up flowers. She doesn't know what's coming. (laughs) So here's a flower. Beautiful flower. Flower has petals. Some of you are thinking, oh, maybe some profound symbolism in the flower. No, no symbolism meant at all, just a flower in and of itself. You see the flower, the suchness of the flower, miracle of life and flower, just a flower. And now I'm going to do something different with the flower. And now, with the second flower, I can say something I couldn't say before. I can say, this is the small flower, and this is the large flower. See? Small, large. Now watch. I'm going to do magic. And I'll even show you how the trick is done. Get it? Small large. You got that? (laughs) What happened to the small flower? (laughs) Now it's the large flower. Large, small. When the flower is there by itself, 
with nothing to compare it to. It's just a flower in the suchness, the dustness of the flower. When we place something next to it, we can compare it. But the comparison does not reside in the flower. It's not innate to the flower. The flower knows nothing about the comparison. The comparison is something that our mind does. It's, it's a real enough comparison. It's not like a fantasy. But it's a comparative thing. It's not inherent in what's there. And why this is significant is that a lot of human suffering belongs to the world of comparative thinking. Better than, worse than. And, and, and sometimes the comparisons, the judgment evaluations between things like that can have more reality than the thing itself. So, big and small, this is, the big, this is big, this is small, and that sense of comparison can be more real than actually what's here. So, we do it with people all the time. The person sometimes disappears, but rather what is, is highlighted is, is how the person is seen in comparison, in evaluation, in judgment. Sometimes it has some basis in truth. There are taller and shorter people. But sometimes it has to do with, you know, all kinds of horrible ways in which we judge, judge ourselves, judge each other, or judge ourselves. So, you know, on retreat, comparing ourselves to other meditators. That person's sitting stiller than I am. I must be not suited for this retreat. That's a comparison. Or, boy, am I ever sitting still. Who are these people around me? There's comparison there. You can charge around it. Uh, when I was at Zen Center, Tassahara, there was, I did the Zen glance sometimes when we had to do, late at night, we had optional, obligatory late night sitting. <laughs> <laughs> they like paradox in Zen, so that's <laughs> optional, obligatory. And there was no end to the sitting. There was no one who rang the bell to end that sitting. You just sat as long as you could get up and go back to your sleep whenever you wanted to. And so the Zen glance was me sitting there. <laughs> She's not really sitting Zazen. Come on. You're just faking it. Come on. <laughs> Go to bed. <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm going to show the her that I can, I can really sit late. <clears throat> <laughs> and we would have this duel to see who could really sit best. There was no sitting going on. <laughs> no sitting whatsoever. It was just comparisons. <laughs> Becoming expert at comparative thinking. So, so, you know, there's so much suffering that goes on in that. Looking good. 
So to look at what goes on in our world of our thinking and our obsessions and preoccupations and how much of it is driven or how much of it is supported by believing that thinking is valuable, believing that we find out who we are by thinking, believing that we, th- we think, therefore we are, that's who I am, believing that the comparisons, the thoughts of comparisons are better and worse, success and failure, really represents something important that we have to kind of work through and figure out. Or is it possible to renounce, let go, or put aside the comparisons so that we can just be a flower, so that we can just be the suchness, the thusness of who we are at the moment. Just this, without, without reference to a past, comparisons, comparative thinking to a past, who I was, comparison to who I was in the future, without comparison to how things should be, oh, I should be more concentrated by now, or how things shouldn't be, oh, I shouldn't be so caught up in my thoughts. There's the thusness of here and now, oh, this is what it's like to be caught up in thoughts. Very simple. No need to judge it, evaluate it, but there is a possibility of seeing it clearly. Oh, just this, just this. There's something about mindfulness practice at its essence, it's meant to be very, very simple. Just this, just to see, be present for this experience in its simplicity, in the thusness of this moment. And there's a lot of freedom and joy and peace that's found in that realm of just this, of suchness, of this. this. And so one of the opportunities here is to learn to disentangle ourselves or renounce the the insistence to think, the belief that thinking is important. You know, might not necessarily like be able to let go of your thinking, but perhaps it's helpful to let go, renounce the belief that thinking in this place, this context of sitting here, is really going to provide the solution. A couple of years ago, there was a woman I knew who was dying, and I was with her for many weeks, and um, she'd done a lot of practice, practice, mindfulness practice, and was using her practice quite beautifully in the process of dying. A lot of equanimity. People would go to spend time with her because there was so much peace and equanimity with her. So it was nice until near the end. And then uh, as she was dying of ALS, and so there was a lot of uh, lack of oxygen and all kinds of discomfort was starting to happen in the last little period. And she started... um, feeling very uncomfortable and very restless and a lot of pain. But more so, she's, the more difficult for her was that uh, she started losing some of her capacity of mind. And uh, she started hallucinating quite a bit. And, and some of them weren't very pleasant to see. And she said to me, 
you, know, you could hardly hear, hardly understand what she had to say. And she said to me that, um, you know, how discouraged she was. And um, that, you know, she couldn't use her mindfulness anymore. It wasn't working anymore, her practice. And, I, and I guess she, was, she was very agitated. And I said to her, it's okay. Just don't believe what you see. Don't believe your thoughts. And with that, she relaxed. And then a few hours later, she died. So how do you relate to the world of thinking? To be able to come back to the breathing. It's easier if you have some wisdom, some wiser attitude towards thinking. To know when it's useful to think and when it's really healthy and helpful and supportive for you to let go, to renounce. And it's not easy. But to feel the tensions, to feel the emotions, to feel all that, to be aware of it, to recognize it, to allow it just be there in its simplicity, without making a big story or a big comparison, befores and afters and shoulds and shouldn'ts, just this is how it is. And then be present for it and then maybe put it down, step aside from it and come back to your breathing and be with the breath. Come back to the breath and don't just, you know, as you let go, let go into your breathing. Don't just let go of your thoughts, but in a sense also you're letting go into the breath. Then go into the out-breath, then go into the in-breath. So there's something to be gained in the letting go. You're not just letting go of something, you're letting go into perhaps this, uh, this little bit of calm, or a little bit of peace, or a little bit of presence, or a little bit of truth. Oh, this is, this is what's happening now. It's uncomfortable. The Buddha talked about how our attachments and our obsessions thin out over time. Rather than kind of, you know, pushing a magic button and boom, everything goes, snap, it's gone. That was one of my delusions for a long time in practice. I was just waiting for it all to go. (laughs) But rather, just keep practicing day in, day out, breath in, breath out. Just hang in there, come back, let go, renounce. And things, the obsessions, the preoccupations, the thoughts, the attachments begin to thin, become weaker. The powerful world of comparative thinking, for example, that nebulous world that is between actual things that we compare, it becomes weaker and weaker, thinner and thinner. We believe it less and less. And at some point, it becomes so thin it's easy to let go of it completely. But it takes time. You have to let it kind of take its, take its course and become weaker. And, and then, and in that process, the benefits of letting go, the benefits of freedom, hopefully become clearer and clearer. The benefits of peace, lack of conflict, 
of love, of compassion, of wisdom, become something that becomes evident and intimate for you so that you can be a flower. Each of you is a flower. May each of you appreciate and love the flower that you are. So let's uh, sit a little bit and water our flowers. May you enjoy the the challenges and benefits of renunciation. 